0: Yes, thank you for being here. Um, at some point in the summer, Roshi Mado, who's away for the next few weeks, she's teaching at Jikoji Zen Center up in Northern California, and also visiting her daughter. Usually, something that doesn't get to happen for her too often during the year. Started thanking people for showing up on Sundays. Thank you for being here on a warm day, on a cold day, on a rainy day, (laughs) on a sunny day, when there were many people here, when there were not many people here. And observing Mado doing this, I thought, well, I'll try that. So I would sometimes thank you for being here. And I realized it's not really my style. My style is more like, where were you last Sunday? (laughs) (laughs) Napping? Good for you. Good to see you this Sunday. But a genuine thank you for being here. Uh, For the last two years, for the last year, the last six months, there's been a lot of work happening behind the scenes, if you will, concerned with the next 20 years of Oan, the next 20 years of our little temple. Um, Can we keep it going? Next month we'll celebrate 20 years of Oan. Um, Because we all know that Mado, as much of a lioness as she is, will not be with us forever. So the next few weeks are an opportunity for us to kind of test that out a little bit. What would it be like if Medha weren't around anymore, or if Medha were just stepping back a little bit. In the short term, I know that she would like to garden more, and she'd like to write a book. She has notebooks filled with 20 years of Dharma talks. She has something to say, she just needs the time to say it, which means there's an opportunity for all of us to do a little more, to give her a gift, of space and time, to relax, to spend more time with her daughter, to go away once in a while, knowing that this place will be okay. So thank you for being here once more. This morning I want to continue our exploration of the Loving Kindness Sutra. And I want to focus in particular on what I consider to be the second part of the sutra. And it reads, wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, in high, middle, or low realms of existence, small or great, visible or invisible, near or far, born or to be born, may all beings be at ease. And as with the first part of the sutra, I really like this part. May all beings be happy, joyous, safe, and free. The first word here is pranidhana which we might also translate as aspiring, but really it means vowing for us. This word refers to the bodhisattvas' vows that are traditionally formulated in this way. Sentient beings are numberless. I vow to save them. Desires are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them and the Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to attain it. And if you continue practicing, if you continue studying, you'll come across slightly different formulations of these vows. Some teachers and sanghas prefer the word serve as opposed to the word save. So sometimes you'll hear I vow to serve all beings. You may also see, I vow to free all sentient beings, or I vow to awaken with all sentient beings. Similarly, rather than ending desires, there are some teachers and Sanghas that prefer understanding. So I vow to understand inexhaustible desires. You can feel a little lost and overwhelmed if you read into some of the debates that concern these finer points of translation and formulation. I know I do, and I think that's saying something. In my academic days, I used to spend a lot of time on such matters. I would deliver long lectures concerned with one half of one sentence and how to understand three words, and I would think it was a matter of life and death. And it wasn't. I just had a really narrow understanding of what was important in my life. So these days, I tend to laugh at this sort of hand-wringing. And I understand that it has its place. And I'm really, really grateful that there are some people who invest a lot of time and energy on these sorts of things. And I'm really grateful that I also don't have to do it. A lot of time I see it as noisy noise. Save versus serve, free versus awaken. How much difference is there, really? Especially when we say that our practice is beyond words and scriptures. And is this where my efforts are best spent? It might be. It might not be. It's really not my place to say, for you, um, only for myself. But the second part of the Loving-Kindness Sutra is clearly inspired by the Bodhisattva's vow to assist all sentient beings with their transformation of their suffering. And I assume that all of us here today have a similar aspiration or wish I won't use the word vow because I don't know where you're at in your practice life. Maybe that's a word you're not comfortable with, and that's just fine. But speaking just for myself, sometimes I find it very challenging to put this vow into action. From my experience, I am aware that I am often quick to offer my assistance with the transformation of suffering to my friends, But all beings, all beings, even those that I consider frustrating and irritating, those I consider annoying and inconsiderate, those I judge as disrespectful, that's challenging, at least for me. I can mouth the words all right, and I can perform the actions in a perfunctory way, but I can tell my heart's not in it. I do what it is that needs to be done, but holding on to a grudge. And then afterwards, I end up resentful and I end up angry. So what I want to focus on today and also next week is how we can meet and work with what gets in the way. If you practice here long enough, you'll hear either Roshi or I say that what gets in the way is the way. Our practice doesn't encourage dodging our difficulties, trying to go around them or under them or leap over them or cut them in half, but meeting them head on, seeing what's happening and learning how to work with it. So this morning I wanna talk about anger. And the first thing to say is that it's just fine. To feel anger, it's just fine to get angry. You can practice Buddhism. You can practice, and you can practice here at Oan on Sundays and with the sangha throughout the week. And you can become angry from time to time. And I feel it's important to say that right at the beginning; otherwise, nothing else I might say will land for you. Sometimes Buddhism and Zen is characterized in a rather mystical way. Um, Sometimes it's held up as a set of teachings or a practice, a way of moving within and through the world that's extra human, more than human, beyond being human. And this is flatly not the case. Our practice doesn't ask us to do anything that we can't do. In fact, what it does allow us to be is fully who we are in any given moment. You might say fully human because we're not asked or required to exclude anything from our lives. So this cartoon characterization of Buddhists as individuals who never get angry is preposterous. Anger, that psychophysiological experience, is part of who we are. We're wired in such a way that when causes and conditions are appropriate, anger arises. What causes? What conditions? Ask a neuroscientist. Ask a philosopher. Ask a psychologist. That's not really what I'm interested in talking about today. But because this cartoon characterization seems to be so common and can be a real obstacle in people for practice, it's one of the reasons that I continually talk about the Big Lebowski and the main character of this wonderful movie, Jeff Bridges' character, the Dude. Because here is a character that's widely regarded as a Zen master of sorts and yet throughout the movie is consistently behaving in ways that don't conform to this cartoon characterization of what it is that a Zen master or a Zen practitioner is. Importantly, he gets angry, right? He gets angry when Walter pushes his way into this operation to deliver a ransom. He gets angry when Walter's like, we're going to throw a ringer, and he's like, what's in the ringer? My dirty undies, dude, the whites. And then he barrel rolls out of the car and he leaves the dude alone in the car, not behind the wheel. And the dude crashes in the car into a light pole. He gets angry at Walter when they're about to spread Donnie's ashes. And he starts going on about Vietnam again and has no relation to the situation. And he goes and scatters the ashes, but he doesn't realize the wind is blowing in the opposite direction. And the ashes go all over the dude. and I say all this to impress upon you that none of this disqualifies the dude from his revered status because his expression of anger in these moments is essential to his expressing who he is in these moments. And this is our practice, being here completely with everything that is happening, It's important to be with our anger for another reason. Although we sometimes classify and talk about anger as one of the three poisons, alongside greed and ignorance, anger can also offer us insights into the reality of the situation. So, the meditation teacher Sharon Salzberg reminds us that anger can impel us to let go of ways we may be inappropriately defined by the needs of others. It can teach us to say no, it can motivate us to turn away from the demands of the outer world to the nascent voice of our inner world, and it's a way to set boundaries. And moreover, anger has the ability to cut through surface appearances. It doesn't just stay on a superficial level. It's quite critical. It's quite demanding. It has the power to pierce through the obvious to things that are more hidden. And this is why anger can be transmuted into wisdom. When I'm angry... And when I sit with my anger, and I sit with an intention to take good care of my anger, as Thich Han often talks about, I usually find that beneath it is fear in some form or other. I'm afraid. I feel unsafe. I feel threatened. And so almost automatically, reflexively, I become defensive and I become suspicious And in an attempt to become powerful, I become angry. You know this, perhaps. When you're angry, you feel powerful. Bring it on, whatever it is that stands in my way. But when I see that really I'm afraid and I feel unsafe, then it becomes clear that defensiveness and hostility are not the appropriate responses to the situation in which I find myself. I spent most of August and part of September quite angry or simmering, as a dear friend sometimes puts it. No rocks were thrown, but there was just an undercurrent of dissatisfaction and discontent in my life. And the appropriate response was reaching out for help with that feeling of fear and all the companions that came along with it. Did I do it immediately? No. Did I act unskillfully during that six, seven, eight week period? Yes. I fell down to the ground multiple times, in fact. And yet I also got up by the ground and got up by the sky. I learned something about myself in the process because I didn't hold tightly or at all, in fact, to some construction according to which I'm just not supposed to get angry. And I'll use this as an opportunity to remind us all of what the ninth of the ten clear mind precepts has to say. It says no harboring anger or ill will, but rather we make it a point to dwell in equanimity. The word harboring here is critically important. As I've said, anger arises and you just can't stop that, prevent that, or otherwise change that. But you don't need to continually feed the flame of anger. Do you understand what I mean when I say that? All too often, anger lives long beyond the inciting incident because we continue to play the tape over and over and over again. We rewind it, we press play, nurturing that feeling and helping that feeling grow stronger. After I wrote that, I thought that Rewind the tape suggests that we play the exact same scenario in the exact same way over and over and over. And I started wondering if we really do that. Um, I don't, in case you were wondering. What I tend to do is adjust little details of the situation just enough so that I feel more in the supposed right putting the other person more in the supposed wrong, with the result that I feel justified in my anger. And at this point, we are far beyond where we started. At best, I think we're fighting with a mental construction that resembles the original thing about which we were angry, and maybe color. That's it. Maybe you've made it black and white just to make it even more dramatic. I don't know. If you ever catch yourself doing this, I suggest that you stop and laugh at yourself. Look, there's this marvelous comedy that you've constructed in your head, and you are the star. So the teachings ask us then not to not become angry, but not to cling or hold on to our anger when it arises. When anger is present, we take good care of it and look deeply into it so that we can see the reality of the situation. And when anger departs, we let it depart. And this may take some time. It might take days. It might take weeks. It might take even months. <clears throat> As Thich Han describes anger, it's a living thing. It comes up, and it needs time to go back down. Even if you have clear evidence to convince someone that his anger or your anger is entirely based on a wrong perception, please don't interfere right away. Like craving, like jealousy, and all afflictions, anger needs time to die down. This is the case even after we have understood that we misunderstood the, the situation. When you turn off a fan, it continues to spin a while before stopping. Anger is like that. Don't expect the other person, don't expect yourself to stop being angry right away. That's not realistic. You have to allow anger to die down slowly So don't rush. What more can we say about working with anger? A lot, come back next week. I have a whole talk on patience prepared. (laughs) But for the rest of today, I just wanna offer one more thought. And it's something that if you've been around for a while, you've heard me say often, are you sure? Are you sure? Are you sure that you're right are correct about the situation? Are you sure that you in fact understand what happened, the person's intentions, their motivations? Are you sure that when you replay the situation in your mind, or you record the situation in your precept journal, you have been truthful to the situation? that you did not adjust what someone said or how they said it, the tone of their voice or the speed of their delivery. Are you sure, and this is especially the case for text-based communication, so much of our text-based communication, that you're not reading something into someone's email or text message? Are you sure that you're not in fact getting in your own way By projecting your own emotional or general psychological state onto something else because it's uncomfortable, because it's unpleasant, or otherwise painful, and you wish to be rid of it. So you externalize it and then become angry at someone who may have (laughs) nothing to do at all with why you are angry in the first place. Are you sure? The answer to this question should always be no. We should not be sure of any perception, judgment, or other mental formation that we have. We act on the basis of mistaken perceptions and incorrect judgments all the time. And if you look back through your life, you will find, if you're honest with yourself, that you have a great track record of doing this. You get an A plus in acting on mistaken perceptions and incorrect judgments. We all do. And that's okay. It's not though because we're flawed or because we're imperfect, far from it. But we live in a continually and constantly changing world, an utterly empty world, Where as soon as we feel that we have a handle on something, you know this feeling. Yep, I got it. There it is. You open your hand and you realize there's nothing there anymore. How could you not sometimes act from a perception or a judgment that does not in fact correspond to the way things are when the way things are is continually slipping away from you over and over again? So there is anger in this life, and there is equanimity, and there is frustration and irritation, and there is relief and relaxation. There is suffering, and there is liberation. And mixed into all of this and more, there is the wish that all beings be happy, joyous, and live in safety underpinned by a vow to embrace and sustain all beings. Thank you.